When dealing with a legend, it's best to begin with the facts. Jesse James was born on September the 5th, 1847, in Clay County, Missouri. The third of four children, he was named after his mother's brother, who had died by suicide. As for his father, Robert S. James, he was a preacher and slave owner, which meant that when the Civil War broke out on April the 12th, 1861, Jesse James was barely a teenager, but already an advocate of the secessionist South. As the war slid into its third year, he joined with his older brother Frank in a Confederate militia led by William Bloody Bill Anderson. When the war ended, the James brothers and other guerrilla members kept hold of their guns and turned to armed robbery, carrying out their first raid on February the 13th, 1866, at the Clay County Savings Bank in Liberty, Missouri. For the next 13 years, the James gang raided their way throughout the state. And by the time he was shot dead on April the 3rd, 1882 by Robert Ford, a new recruit to his gang, James had enacted countless robberies on banks, trains and stagecoaches, and by his own estimation, had murdered 17 people. Which begs the question, how did such a violent man become a folkloric legend? The transformation began soon after the James brothers targeted the Davies Country Savings Association in Gallatin, Missouri. On the morning of December the 7th, 1869, the pair entered the bank not for money, but for revenge. The bank's cashier had been identified as one Samuel Cox, a former commander of the pro-Union forces, who had killed the James's Confederate leader, William Bloody Bill Anderson. Entering the bank, the younger brother singled out the cashier and shot him twice, once in the head and once through the heart, only to learn later that the man was not Samuel Cox, but in fact, John W. Sheets. Prior to working in the bank, Sheets had served two terms as sheriff of Davies County, six years as circuit clerk, four years as county recorder, as well as county commissioner. In response to the James's crime, Missouri's governor, Thomas Fletcher, recruited the Pinkerton Detective Agency to bring in the James gang. A grand jury was sworn and from the witnesses' testimonies, the brothers were indicted in absentia for the Sheets murder. Nonetheless, a Missouri newspaper editor, John Newman Edwards, ran a series of articles extolling James's actions as heroic. Why? Edwards had served as a Confederate major in the Civil War, and he was profoundly agitated by the terms of surrender the Union North had imposed upon the Confederate South. And so Edwards' newspaper described James as a defiant Southern patriot of the Reconstruction era. Writing in the Kansas City Times on September the 29th, 1872, Edwards all but canonized James in print, saying he might have sat with Arthur at the round table, written in tourney with Sir Lancelot, or won the colors of Guinevere. The hagiography took root, and as it spread, James's violence perfumed into legend, converting him from the murderous son of a slave owner into a Robin Hood figure who was thieving from the rich Union North to house, clothe, and feed the poor, destitute South. Such is the persuasive power of fake news. You know what I got right next to my bed? It's the train robbers or story of the James boys by R.W. Stevens. I mean, many's the night I stayed up with my eyes open and my mouth open just reading about your escapades in the Wide Awake Library. They're all lies, you know. Yeah, of course they are. 
Released in 2007, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is based on Ron Hansen's 1983 novel of the same name. And of the 50-something films that have depicted James, it is this version, adapted and directed by Andrew Dominic, that historians regard as the most faithful to the facts. While extensively researched, Hansen's novel is nonetheless speculatively imagined. Nominated for a Penn Faulkner Award, it was Hansen's richly seasoned contemporary argot that convinced Dominic a fresh angle could be taken on an overtold life and proselytised legend. Ron had really done all the work, you know, the novelist, and I went back to his source material and I read all the newspaper accounts of the time and stuff like that, but there was, they lived in, uh, you know, Jesse James lived in Canvas City, which in those days was a, a, a more of a city than it is now, you know what I mean? It was a, it was a thriving kind of m metropolis and it looked really Victorian. <laughs> One of cinema's earliest depictions of the outlaw, Jesse James Under the Black Flag, came in 1921 and starred none other than James's own son, Jesse Jr. Like almost all Hollywood westerns, Jesse James Under the Black Flag says more about the time in which it was made than the time in which it was set. And even though it runs for just over an hour, by mere virtue of having James's son appearing as him on screen, Under the Black Flag prints the legend as fact. Then in 1949 came Fighting Man of the Plains. Released just as the McCarthy witch hunts began to grip Hollywood, Fighting Man of the Plains has Jim Dancer, a former bandit, now turned marshal, asking James for his help to clean up a Kansas town. The subtext here being the communist sympathizers can name names and help rid America of their fellow travelers. Jesse James. Hello, Jim. It's been a long time. <laughs> Never so surprised in my life as when I saw you yesterday. We thought you were dead. I guess the pleasant man got the wrong fellow. No, he got me all right, only he was killed. Thought it would be a good idea if I took his name. Why? Just to cover up Jim Dancer's trail, I could understand it. <laughs> the marshal of a boom town like this isn't exactly invisible. Into the 1960s and 70s, with the US becoming embroiled in Vietnam, revisionist westerns saw the prairies as emblematic of American imperialism. The Wild Bunch, Tell Them Willie Boys Here, Soldier Blue, and Buffalo Bill and the Indians. Then in 1980, just as Ronald Reagan swept conservatism back into the White House, Walter Hill directed The Long Riders. Besides featuring real-life brothers James and Stacy Keach as the James brothers, the picture aimed to restore the elegiac, legendary status of the Wild West. But Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate was released in the same year, and that all but put paid to the genre. You people make me sick. Let's not have any last-minute sentimentalism about the killing of a few thieves and anarchists. You ever kill a man yourself, Canton? Mr. Champion, my grandfather was the Secretary of War to Harrison. His brother was a governor of the state of New York. My brother-in-law is the Secretary of State. And to you, I represent the full authority of the government of the United States and the president. Fuck him too. So what new angle, reflective of the respective eras, did Hansen's 1983 novel, and a quarter of a century later, Dominic's film, bring to an old and perilously weary story? 
for Hansen's book, consider this. On March the 30th, 1981, 25-year-old John Hinckley, who had obsessed over Jodie Foster ever since first seeing her in Taxi Driver, attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan in a deluded effort to win the actress's affection. A few months earlier, on December the 8th, 1980, 25-year-old Mark David Chapman assassinated his idol John Lennon on the steps of his New York apartment building. And less than eight years before that, on May the 15th, 1972, 22-year-old Arthur Bremer attempted to assassinate Democratic presidential candidate George Wallace. As always seems to be the case with this kind of tragedy, there was no inkling of trouble. Governor Wallace had encountered heckling earlier in the day as he toured the Maryland suburbs of Washington, but the crowd at Laurel seemed receptive and friendly. Governor Wallace had just finished speaking and had taken off his coat, was shaking hands, when four or five shots were fired, two of them recorded in this film by ABC News cameraman Charlie Jones. Robert Ford was barely 20 years of age when he assassinated Jesse James, a man whom he had venerated since childhood, and then later stalked with the intention of claiming a bounty promised for James's corpse. So Hansen's angle was not about the legend, but instead about the man who murdered one. In other words, James, the slave owner's son, the Confederate rebel who never laid down his guns, and instead continued his own sociopathic civil war, would be a support player in a story that was really about Robert Ford, a man who found himself an idol and then organized himself to destroy it. I've been a nobody all my life. I was the baby. I was the one they made promises to that they never get. And ever since I can remember it, Jesse James has been as big as a tree. Ma, I'm prepared for this, Jim. I want to accomplish it. I know I won't get with this one opportunity and you can bet your life I'm not going to spoil it. But it is one thing to write a novel from that angle. It is quite another to make a movie from it. If you're going to kill off a legend in a novel, you only have to write him as a legend. A movie, however, demands a star of such magnitude that the audience see the legend. Which is why Dominic cast Brad Pitt. And which is why Pitt took the part. He was going to play against type. As played by Pitt, Jesse James is not an energetic cowboy, charismatic or charming. Instead, in a performance utterly shorn of a star's ego, he is morose, sadistic and distinctly sociopathic. All of which allowed Dominic say something profoundly different from the Hansen novel. In the years after it was published, American popular culture became acutely transfixed with celebrity. Where once individuals have been celebrated for their unique intelligence, innovation or gifts, in the early 21st century a wave of individuals with little to no discernible talent emerged as idols. And such was their adulation, it also appeared that no matter what their behaviour, rude, dishonest, unfaithful, abusive, selfish, bigoted or even criminal, they were still venerated as role models. But on reflection, that phenomenon is not all that new. Reconsider the likes of Jesse James, Wild Bill Hickok, Billy the Kid and Robert Leroy Parker, better known as Butch Cassidy. It would appear that part of Dominic's point is that American culture frequently chooses as its heroes the likes of Al Capone, John Dillinger, Whitey Bulger and Henry Hill. One day, one day some of the kids from the neighborhood carried my mother's groceries all the way home. You know why? It was out of respect. Dominic set out to dismantle the notion of celebrity and lay bare once and for all 
the true nature of not just Jesse James, but a culture that venerates him. Which is why the film opens with him planning a robbery. But while the raid is captured in a series of stunning tableaus by master cinematographer Roger Deakins, the robbery itself is far from exhilarating. It is slow and brutal, with James's plan failing to yield the bounty he had hoped. And all the while, watching from the shadows is Robert Ford. Played by a suitably faltering Casey Affleck, we see that Ford is fixated by James. And Dominic frames that fixation in such a way that when we look at Ford looking at James, we can see that he yearns to be famous, to be celebrated. You know what I expected? Applause. <sighs> I find it bewildering when people say that James had charisma. Charisma comes from the Greek charis, which means favour or grace. James neither drew favour from men, nor did he have grace. What he had was magnetism, and what drew his gang to him was fear. Fear that he would do them harm. Veterans of the Civil War, James's gang were misfits, outcasts and loners, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Like all veterans, they yearned for comradeship, and in that yearning, they mistook James's pathology for charisma. By staying close, his gang were trying to avoid his paranoid cruelty and brutal punishments. James used his gang as little more than tools to get what he wanted. Not just money, but control, power, status. He played them off one another as a king would his court, dividing his subjects through an unpredictable mix of solace and scorn. All in order to get them to squabble amongst themselves, thinking that they were each other's mortal enemy, when in actual fact it was the man on the throne who was the real villain. I come by to ask if one of you two forwards care to ride with me in a journey or two. I guess we both agree it ought to be Charlie. You've been acting sort of testy. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford benefits from Dominic's deliberate pacing, an extremely strong ensemble cast, a haunting score from Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, and above all, breathtaking images from Roger Deakins. But the images take your breath away, not only because of their beauty, but because of the work they do. For some shots, Deacon's mounted glass from old wide-angle lenses onto the regular lens. This resulted in slight vignettes and colour diffraction at the edges of the frame, all to evoke old photographs taken in the 1880s. Another great British cinematographer, David Watkin, had done something similar on Tony Richardson's 1968 version of the Charge of the Light Brigade. That film was set in the Crimean War of the 1850s, the earliest period setting in which photography existed. And so Watkin dared to use old-fashioned, uncoated lenses. Lenses which his contemporaries refused to use because of their unpredictability. And that unpredictability caused a light refraction on the image that evoked the era. Evocative, yes, but for Jesse James, remember that the outlaw suffered from a rare eye condition which today would be diagnosed as blepharitis. And while Robert Ford did not have the same ailment, there is no doubt that his vision of James was blighted. When it was released, Dominic's film seemed to be about celebrity. But I think in future years, 
as opinion on gun ownership in America hopefully changes to convince lawmakers for greater control, the nation might change its attitude towards characters currently considered heroes. Jesse James and his ilk were killers, nothing else. Sure, you can try to contextualise their violence as being part of a violent culture. But you need to recognise their actions as having created that violent culture. Such men are not to be admired. Neither are they to be feared. They are to be understood and disarmed.